This is Course Correction from Doha Debates. I'm Nelifa Hidayat. Each episode will look at one big global issue and meet the people who are actively working to fix it. We're not just a podcast. We also put on a series of live debates with speakers who have inspiring ideas about how to change the world. Our debates are special because we design them to build bridges between experts rather than to pit them against each other. We look for what connects us rather than what separates us and we focus on the solutions. In a live debate at the Paris Peace Forum last November, we discussed the growing distrust in governments. People trust in their leaders is at an all-time low. Recent research tells us that three quarters of the world's governments are mistrusted by their own citizens. From the US, France, Hong Kong, Iran, Lebanon to Algeria, people all over the world say they want new leaders and new forms of leadership. So our debate question was whether it's possible to rebuild trust in existing government systems or should we consider a new decentralized digital democracy? Each of our participants had their own take. And I believe that societies can thrive with low levels of trust as long as governments engage in new ways of listening to the people and then, of course, act on what they say. Blockchain technology has an extraordinary promise to eliminate middlemen that are gerrymandering trust out of the hands of individuals who need to own their own sovereign rights. All of us agree that we need better political leadership globally. All of us. But wouldn't this be achieved if the young go out to vote? That last speaker was Zaid Rad al-Hussein. He's a former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. He's also a founder of the International Criminal Court and a veteran diplomat. He spent his career focusing on the relationship between governments and their people, especially what happens when these relationships go wrong. I sat down to talk with him before the debate, and just a heads up, we deal with some pretty brutal events, including war crimes, and there are cuss words right from the start. If either of those is challenging for you, this may be one to skip. I've pulled up just some quotes from from around the world about you. Uh, Dutarte. From the Philippines called you son of a whore. Yeah, uh, my mother was very upset. I it. bet. Yeah. The North Koreans said that you are a plot-reading scandal monger. The Venezuelan yeah. said you are a resounding failure. The yeah. Chinese think you're disgraceful. Yeah. The Russian ambassador dismissed you, I mean, completely. Yeah, yeah, and he, said said, he said I had Messiah complex and I was mad or something. And then he added that you're a kamikaze and unhinged. Yeah. Are you any of those things? I'm probably all of them. No, I, no, I wouldn't say son of a whore. Look, you know, you grow accustomed to it. Yeah. I've done this for 11 years. Listen, yeah. I've never seen the, yeah. the, the reactions you invoke yeah. universally yeah. Ar- around the globe. Yeah. It's astonishing. Yeah, Why yeah. are they so scared of you? You see, what we're we asking is a very basic question. We're actually questioning whether you're serving your people or not. Are you discriminating against your people? Are you depriving them or you're not? And they don't like it. If they uh, believe that what we were saying were lies, let us have a look. What are you hiding? Why don't you let us in and do an investigation? And so, of course, then they go on the offensive. 
as a predecessor of mine said, when you're in that space between a government and its people, mm. you're in a very sensitive space. To me, it didn't really matter that they say all of this. Because on the other hand, we got, I got lots of letters from civil society actors, people that we'd freed from detention, people that we'd helped uh, recover from torture. So it, it was always, I believe, a net gain for us. Uh, after your first term as the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, when, when that ended, you said, quote, to be re-elected in my job would be to fail. Yes. You always, I think, when you deal with these issues, there is uh, so much pressure. Uh, and it's not the pressure from governments. I mean, I can I easily deal with that. It's the pressure from victims uh, who expect so much. And if you don't feel you can deliver, you try everything. I do interviews like this press conferences, speeches, reports, and yet you know often it's not going to bring someone back from the dead. It's not going to bring someone out of an IDP camp or a refugee camp. And so there is always a questioning uh, whether, whether or not you're a fraud to a certain extent, or people put their trust in you and you just simply can't deliver. And that pressure is absolutely enormous. You, was it Yugoslavia the first time you went out in the field? to witness a lot of these things on behalf of yeah, the UN? Yeah, it was my first experience with the UN. And I was 30 years old. And uh, it was the definitive, the key moment in my life, I think. Yeah. I think I read somewhere that you saw the skull of a small child um, yeah. as, a, as a trophy on the car of a local warlord or, or yeah. whoever. As I sit and speak to you now, I can feel yeah. it affects you quite a lot. Why, why was that moment so important to you? And what did you learn in that moment that you carry through with you till today? Well, it's the, the, the extremes of violence that exist, putting the head of the child on the, the bonnet of the car and then putting a UN helmet over it. And he drove up next to us and uh, we were heading down to Sarajevo from uh, Pale. This was at the close of 1994. It was one of these, so there were quite a few moments like that. And you realize that much as we can celebrate uh, what it is that we achieve as humanity, uh, you know, there's, a, there's still uh, beasts that lie within us. And one of the questions I will say to my law students, actually the first question I would say to my law students, is why do you think we need law? Why do we need law? And they will look at me, sort of, as you're looking at me now. And I say, because if we don't engage ourselves in law, we know what we're capable of doing. You just weaken the bars a little bit. We venture out a little bit. We are utterly capable of destroying ourselves. And that's why we need law. And so there is much to celebrate about us, but there's much to be frightened about the human being. You've seen some of the worst atrocities that humanity's perpetrated against itself in the last 20 years, 30 years. Um, are you despondent about what we're able to do and what we're able to achieve? Well, I think, you know, there are three conditions that I would use when I visited a country. I would say to myself, does this country suffer from structural discrimination? You know, is there a particular group, minority, under enormous pressure? Are they then deprived of basic social and legal protections and services on the back of that? And does the system run on fear? And uh, if you ticked off all three, then you're in a highly repressive state. 
And, uh, and, you know, when you look around the world, there are not many countries that have pristine records. I, I don't actually, I can't think of one. You've often spoken about the, the need to make sure that all mm. nations are judged by the same standards, whether they're African nations or Arab nations, who are often almost uh, treated differently in, in, in geopolitical circumstances. Well, you know, they do things differently in those, in those countries or in those um, uh, nations. How important is it to treat Arab nations to the same standards that we will hold any developed Western country? No, I mean, we... We didn't discriminate between any particular... I mean, by the time I finished my, my particular post, I think there was, hard, there was hardly a single country which we hadn't commented on in terms of the, the, the deficit when it came to its own uh, uh, rights record. And we, we, you know, when you look at the UN more generally, by and large, most of the UN focuses on the global south and most of it's in Africa, MENA region peace and security, development, humanitarian, right? Parts of Asia and Latin America. But the human rights is a total perspective. And we spent just as much time looking at the global north as we did the global south. We didn't exclude any country, you know, countries that otherwise, you know, will intimidate the international organizations. Um, we didn't. Uh, we didn't pull our punches with any particular country. But do you think that... Uh, and I didn't take a different perspective regarding the Arab countries uh, as opposed to any others. But do you think um, that globally yeah. people do have a sense of exceptionalism when it comes to treating the Arab nations? Like, well, because they are so important in terms of the resources that they offer to the planet, in a way we, we have this exceptionalism. Well, they do things differently over there. Well, there and was, they're, and they're there's let a off. There was a category of countries that the UN traditionally is sort of intimidated by. You know, Venezuela, Cuba, uh, Saudi Arabia, Turkey... And then the, some of the superpowers as well in the U.S. that um, tend to intimidate the rest of the international community, and no one dare say anything. And for for that reason, you know, we went for so many years the UN without having a report on the situation in Kashmir until my office produced a report on it. That the line between those extremes and those peripheries seems to be bridging in the last sort of five or six years. You've got. Duterte out in the Far East, you've got um, yeah. uh, Gert Wilder in, in Europe, and you've got Donald Trump over in, in yeah. the United States. Uh, almost, that they, they, they speak in unison, they're, they're evoking the same sort of well, divisive language. Yeah. Yes. There was a, a method to the way in which chauvinistic nationalisms were manipulated in the early 20th century. And I often speak about Karl Weger, the infamous mayor of, of Vienna, mm. very sophisticated ma mayor who, who basically took the anti-Semitism present in uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and turned it into a much more virulent form because it yielded so much political dividend for him. And he couldn't resist it. And third-rate politicians suddenly are elected into office with 55% of the vote because they knew that if you can uh, attack a particular group, polarize the society, it does work. You're playing on people's emotions. You create a, a sort of you, the, the reptilian part of the human brain advances. We, we don't seem to be just losing trust in national mm. leaders. We seem to be losing faith in each other. No, of course. I mean, Karl Weger did the same. He, he talked about the, he, was in, he argued in defense of the small man. You know, the man who was lost in the Industrial Revolution. And it was a transformation akin to what we're seeing now. And people were losing their jobs. People were moving into cities. 
They were living in sort of miserable parts of cities. And, and he aspired to speak on their behalf, but he was weaponizing their anger, directing it against a certain population. Instead of saying that these are structural issues, we have to look back at the records of previous governments. We have to see where we've defaulted. Mm. You know. While we were talking, I couldn't help but think of one city that I had in mind, the birthplace of the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. If you ever hear someone tell you they're going to Davos, it's shorthand for, I'm so well connected. I'm in the elite group of world leaders and business folk. And each year we all get together to plan what's on the world's agenda. I had to ask him about Davos. Would you ever speak at it? I have spoken at it. Do you, do you like it? Do you think it's a... It's I never a... was never comfortable there. Why? Because I felt a significant number of the people attending should be in prison. Given what they've done to their own people. It always made me feel uncomfortable. I said to my colleagues, please don't. I, there was a particular lunch that I didn't like to go to every year because they always seemed to put me next to some war criminal. And I said, <laughs> I, I just don't want to go. And they said, they said, no, no, no. You, you know, this year we've made sure you're going to be sitting. In, and, and they sat me next to someone I, indicted by the ICC. And I, you know, so I, I'm never comfortable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you helped establish the ICC, the International Criminal Court. You're there at the UN, you know, the chief of the human rights um, division. Um, how does it feel to be such an outsider on the inside? Well, I, I don't see myself, you know, I don't categorize myself as like that. I just, whenever I was given a job, I tried to do the best job I could do. And, and part of it, I think, was stimulated by what I saw in the former Yugoslavia, because you see where hatreds take you. Why do we not just see humans as humans with views and, and basically make decisions about them on the basis of their conduct, right? And we sort of all float into this categorization, which is in part, you know, what leads to stereotyping and bigotry and prejudice and so forth. What is uh, your form, former employer, the UN, what, what position does it hold in trying to rebuild this trust that... Um, people from all over the global south. I'm from Afghanistan. I was born in Kabul. Um, yeah. We don't have much faith in UN peacekeepers or ISAF or the international um, goodwill that seems to flow through our nation. Um, I wonder, like, what, what... Well, the UN, I've always said the UN is as great or as pathetic as the rest of the world is. Out there. The UN is just a reflection of the rest of the world. If the, if the world is in a pathetic state, the UN is in a pathetic state. The, why, is it in a pathetic state? Yeah, it's in a pathetic state. Why, is, why should the UN be seen as anything different? It's comprised of the 193 governments that make up the world, right? So why, why should they be any better on the inside if they're, if they're you know, pathetic on the outside? And or, you know, uh, conversely, if the, you see a world that's improving, where you see greater respect for human rights, greater democracy, you'll see a better UN. Right? And if it's not working, it's just an example of what is outside. So we have to try and make it work. We have to try and make the world work. My great hope is at grassroots level, real leadership, courageous, selfless, you know, people willing to sacrifice that first instinct of us human beings, which is the instinct of self-preservation. And they were willing to overcome this for the sake of advancing the rights of people. And that gave me lots of, that's completely the opposite of your 
typical politician in many right. countries. And that's where we have hope. And that's where I saw, you know, humanity at, at its best. I wanted to take a second and, and talk yeah. about your daughter. Yeah. She's a massive climate change activist or climate activist. crisis yeah. activist. And yeah. I saw your Twitter. A few, you, yeah. You're a proud dad. Like yeah. You're, you're yeah, there supporting her civil yeah. disobedience. Yeah. Yeah. How important is the younger generation? How, how much must we rely on, on them, on the younger folk, to try and course correct for, for the direction well, we're heading to now? It's their century. I mean, they, they almost have no choice, right? It's their century. And they have to step in. And they have to assert themselves uh, because we will depart soon and they're going to be left with these colossal, colossal problems. I mean, enormous problems. Mm. And, and you, one can never belittle the difficulty. Is she hopeful for her future? Well, she's fighting for it and she's very activist and she's out protesting all the time and writing letters. And we... I mean, we're very proud of her, so long as the activism is directed out of the house. When it's directed into the house, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. Is she for us. okay boomering you? Uh, yeah, is she having I mean, a go yeah, you? no, she's constantly accusing us of this or that, and sometimes she says, I want to have my lawyer with me. I don't, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you. So she's very tough. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I can rely on her yeah, to keep exactly. you in check. Lots of food for thought there. That is all the show we have today. To watch the full live debate, go to YouTube and search for Doha Debates Loss of Trust. You can see all of the speakers' proposed solutions. And tell me what you think. I want to hear from you. Tweet us at Doha Debates or get in touch with me at Nelifa. Course Correction is written and hosted by me, Nelifa Hidayat. The show is produced by Doha Debates and Transmitter Media. Doha Debates is a product of Qatar Foundation. Special thanks to our team at Doha Debates. Jafit Weeks, Amjad Atullah and Jigga Mehta. See you soon.